Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Book Network's page for Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Patrick Slaney. Today I'm talking to Audra Wolf about her new book, Competing with the Soviets, Science, Technology, and the State in Cold War America, which offers a synthetic account of American science during the Cold War. Wolf pulls together a rich and disparate literature to provide a thematic, chronological, and accessible story about the distinctive ways that Americans wove science and government together in the five decades after the Second World War. Far more than a story about physics, Wolf shows not only how science prospered under federal patronage, but also how the federal government itself came to depend on science as it tried to deal with the problems it faced around the world and at home. The nature of American science, the promise of American modernity, was put on display in works on institutions as varied as modernization theory and the Apollo missions. Wolf has written a delightful little book offering the historical state of the art for those interested in thinking about the characteristic relationships forged between science and the state during the Cold War and their lasting consequences. Hi, Audra. Hi, Patrick. Welcome to the New Book Network's page for Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. (laughs) I'm glad you're delighted. Uh, Today we're talking about your new book, Competing with the Soviets, Science, Technology, um, and the State in Cold War America. But before we jump into it, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write the book? Sure. Well, you know, like a lot of historians of science, I did my undergraduate degree in the sciences. I was a double major in biology and chemistry at Purdue in the 1990s. And in the 1990s, if you were studying biology, the big thing that everybody was talking about was, of course, the Human Genome Project. So there was a lot of discussion, both about genetic determinism and about the role of scientists in the public sphere. You know, did geneticists have too much power or were people, um, was the public ceding them too much power? Just a lot of talk about kind of what science could and couldn't do and what the public should let them do. So when I went to graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania um, in history of science, these were issues that were very much on my mind. And it turns out that in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, one of the best, one of the most vibrant areas of scholarship to think about issues of scientific authority was actually um, scholarship on the Cold War. Um, The consensus at that time was that American scientists probably had more authority and more power than they had ever had and probably would ever have again in the years immediately after World War II. Um, And a lot of this literature dealt with physicists, uh, both because of the obvious reason that they were getting a lot of their power from the Manhattan Project. Um, But it was also this historiographical uh, effect that the most important book in that field had been Dan Kavlis's work in the late 70s called The Physicist, which was really this this kind of magisterial study of how one professional group, the physicists, came to hold such a uh, kind of vaunted place in American society uh, during this time period. So a lot of work that was uh, debating this question was really focused on the physicist and focusing on this group. But what I found as I did my dissertation was that particularly if you looked at a slightly later period, say in the uh, starting of the late 50s, as opposed to immediately after World War II, 
is that a lot of the scientists who were in the public eye weren't actually physicists. They were biologists, uh, people like Joshua Lederberg, who had a newspaper column in the Washington Post for many years, or they might be people, um, you know, maybe social scientists, people like Ashley Montague. He was an anthropologist who was very um, active as a public figure, you know, very much on television on a regular basis, that sort of thing. So um, my dissertation was on the Cold War, but it was about uh, scientists, particularly biologists, as public intellectuals during that time period. So I'd thought, been thinking about this issue for a long time. But um, at that point, I uh, set my scholarly work aside for a few years to launch a career in scholarly publishing, and that's what I still do. Um, but I really only got interested again in doing my own scholarly work about four years ago. And so since it had been, you know, a good eight to 10 years since I had really been uh, deeply in this literature, the first thing that I did was I thought, oh, I should go read an introductory book to see what the latest to see what the latest scholarship is about science in the Cold War. And I was surprised to find out that there wasn't one. There had been so many wonderful new books about uh, books and articles, you know, hundreds of them about various aspects of science in the Cold War. Uh, whether these were books on electronics or the bomb or protest movements or the social sciences. But if you wanted to read about all of these things in one place and just get a bird's eye view of it, there wasn't, uh, there weren't any resources to do that. And so I, I started getting really excited about this and I thought this would be fun. This would be both fun and it would be useful to the profession, uh, both as a teaching tool, but also as a way to reach other fields. Uh, because of course, if you're not a specialist, it's very difficult to get into a literature if there's not a book that can at least show you more or less what scholars in your field tend to think about it. So that's what I was attempting to do uh, when I decided to write this book. No, and I think that that comes across across really well. And I was really impressed by, I guess, how up to date all of your sources were. Um, and I think you're doing something ambitious and, and, and needed for the discipline. Um, so it must have been a little bit strange. And I think so I guess I'm interested in the ways that it was challenging um, to synthesize all of that literature that you talked about that has just exploded in, say, the last 15 to 20 years, um, when most historians are doing very careful analytic micro-studies, and your, your goal is something bigger here, um, well, I guess what were your goals in doing this big sort of, not, magisterial is the wrong word, but sort of a, a larger perspective um, text, um, and how did you sort of deal with them as you put the book together, the challenges, sorry, the challenges you faced? Right. Well, first of all, thank you for the compliment. You know, I was very much trying to do a big picture and I wanted to take advantage of all of this recent literature. So I'm, I'm very glad that this came across. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, uh, an opportunity of being an independent scholar that I even had that. The assumption is that your first book should very much be a research monograph. But because I worked in scholarly publishing for many years, I was familiar with um, both how difficult it is to write a book, but also um, how few people read scholarly books. Uh, and, you know, I find, this, I find this sad, but I also felt that, you know, I, if I were going to go to the trouble of writing a book, I wanted it to be something that people would read. And so I was uh, looking forward to that challenge of to write something for that uh, for that broader audience. Uh, but of course, one of the biggest challenges is in writing a synthetic book is that you are reliant on the existing literature. So if there are holes in that literature, 
generally you can't talk about it that much in your book. Um, you know, there might be, uh, the, the chapter, the, the last chapter in the book on the 1980s is, is set up somewhat differently than some of the rest of the chapters. And in part, that's because there just is not as much scholarship on, um, on that time period as there is for other scholarships. So, you know, that's certainly a challenge. You also absolutely have to trust, uh, your secondary sources. Because you can't possibly be an expert with uh, on all of the subtopics throughout the book, so if there are minor um, kind of details that uh, absolute experts in a particular subfield would recognize, and maybe they know that the um, you know the certain statistics in so and so's book aren't quite right, um, you as the writer of a synthetic volume might not know that. Um, and so what it really does is it raises the bar for um, sharing your work with other scholars before you put it through the peer review process, because even the peer reviewer can't be expected to have a deep, deep knowledge of all the topics in there. Things that I tried to do throughout this book was to um, work in partnership with uh, people who were more experts on specific fields than I was, and to try and get some feedback early on. I also wanted this to be to feel a little bit more like a community effort. So you know, using social media, I would fairly frequently reach out to colleagues um, on new electronic platforms, whether it was, uh, you know, Facebook or it wasn't Twitter at the time, but I think it would have been now. And to ask them, what do you think of this example? Would it be better to include this one or this one? Um, or, you know, do you think undergrads would get this? Um, and that was, that was really fun and challenging to think about what would work, but also to think about what was the least amount of detail that one could include in this book. Um, because, as you know, uh, it's a very short book. The book mm -hmm. is... Uh, 176 pages. Uh, and all of the books in this series with Johns Hopkins are short books. So from the beginning, I knew that the basically all of the chapters were going to be approximately 6,000 words. Um, so I had to make strong choices from the beginning about what could be in and what couldn't. Um, and to really think about what examples might be representative and what weren't. Um, you know, what, what would be added by including yet another example? Would it just be illustrating the same point with more color or would it be telling us something different about the story? Um, you know, that, it was really challenging and there were definitely places where I feel like I could have made entirely different choices and that would have been fine. <laughs> there wasn't a right answer for some of these chapters. Um, you know, but it was fun and it was really, um, a treat to be able to, to read outside of um, my own areas of expertise and to try and uh, try to get a handle on this literature. I mean, I found the book incredibly approachable and, and very, very readable. So I don't think um, anything that you put in there would be sort of inappropriate for an undergraduate audience. Um, but I did actually want to ask you, but I mean, just this, one of the ways that the book is different from most scholarly monographs is that it has a suggested for further reading sections instead of a standard bibliography. Um, how is that different to put together? Right. Well, and, and what you didn't say, but I think yeah. uh, what you know is that, of course, it doesn't actually have footnotes either. So There's a few. I, I was told to footnote direct quotes. Okay. Uh, so, and originally I didn't think that that was allowed either. So uh, in the original version of the suggested further reading, all citations, both to uh, specific statistics, specific facts, and specific quotes were written into the suggested further reading. Um, and in the end, the direct quotes are cited as footnotes, but everything else is uh, attributed in the suggested further reading. Yeah. Uh, it was a challenge. That was really a challenge. Um, and in part, it has to do with um, kind of wrapping one's head around how you write this kind of synthetic book. Every synthetic book in every field 
cast on the work of other scholars. And truly make it work, you have to get to the point where you just feel comfortable um, writing some things as kind of established interpretations without crediting them in the text. And it's uncomfortable to do that at first. But so you, you try to get around that by making clear in the suggested further reading um, to whom you edited, uh, who the interpretations come from. And can't you also can't um, name every book in the field or every article in the field, uh, which is also challenging. You kind of have to take some choices, uh, make some choices there. So maybe because the book is a teaching text, it's organized in a, in a chronological way. Um, but you do argue that there are – we have to sort of treat American science during the Cold War as a kind of whole, and that there are certain structural and analytic characteristics that it shares – and is sort of that it shares throughout that time period. Can you say a little bit about what those features are, um, and what maybe a little bit about how they change over the time period you're examining? Sure, that's you know that that's really a great question, and it was um, a challenge as I was writing this book because from the beginning I had really envisioned this as a thematic work. I wanted to write a book that somehow got at the question of the special and unique role between science and the state. Uh, during the Cold War period, the unique role that science had in both uh, uh, maintaining and projecting state power during this time period. And it seemed to me that the way to address that question and the way that it's normally taught in courses um, is thematic, that people typically would have, a, uh, you know, maybe a week on big science or on the military industrial complex or on um, kind of the end of this consensus in the 1960s and, and protest movements. But my editors at Johns Hopkins felt very strongly that this book needed to be chronological. And uh, in the end, I, I completely agree. But it took me a while. It took a while to get me on board with that. And um, I found it really challenging to think about how you would organize a book that was both thematic and chronological. And so in the end, what I ended up doing was to um, really stagger the book so that the chapters, that each chapter moves forward somewhat in time. And there's kind of three divisions, uh, three temporal divisions in the book, although they're not clearly stated as that. The first three chapters really deal with the early Cold War uh, up until uh, around 1960. And then the next three chapters go from about 1960 until 1969. And then the later two chapters are kind of the beginning of the end of how things started to fall apart in the 60s and 70s. And then um, kind of the, the surprising end of the Cold War in the 1980s. But what I was trying to do was to identify um, the time period where each theme was the most uh, important or the most salient. So, for instance, the chapter on big science uh, was actually the most challenging to write because I think many scholars would agree that uh, one of the characteristics of Cold War science kind of in the post-war period or contemporary science for that matter um, are these large projects, you know, these multi-site projects involving many, many people, maybe they involve large equipment, large capital expenses. This is not something that's uh, really restricted to a specific five to ten year period in the Cold War. But that being said, there is a moment where it seems to really take off. So that chapter in the book actually starts around uh, 1957 with Sputnik. And it goes until about 1962. And I chose to focus it that way because big science kind of got bigger during that time period. And it started ex it, it started expanding beyond um, kind of military contractors during that time period. That it really became a way of characterizing um, 
many, many kinds of science, whether it was applied science or what they call what they used to call pure science or basic science, undirected science, whatever word you want to use for that. Uh, but in the in the social sciences, as well as in biology and in physics, you really see this trend um, just kind of taking off in the 50s and 60s. Now, of course, that's not to say that this is the first time that big science happened. Obviously, the Manhattan Project uh, during World War II was in some ways, a classic big science project. And some scholars have pointed to um, certain labs and practices in the 30s. Or one could even make arguments about um, kind of expeditions in the 19th century that mm-hmm. would be classified as big science. So, um, of course, you know, 1957 and 1962 aren't the only years that big science existed. But one can point to that as something kind of unique happening then. In the same way, uh, the, the chapter four about hearts and minds and modernization theory really starts in 1961 because science started playing a different role in American foreign policy around that time with uh, when, when Kennedy came into office. But of course, um, you know, it didn't just start in 1961 and it didn't end with Kennedy's assassination either. Um, so this was something that I was struggling with throughout the book, but it was a way to impose some order on the material to help undergrads um, get some sense of change over time. Right. Um, so one of the other themes that's throughout the book and that you, you do track that's changing over time is this sort of, I mean, it's, it's wrong to say the relationship between science and government because in so many ways it's like the interpenetration of science and government or science as governance or, or you know, government governments as science, I think at some points as well too. Um, and I'm kind of fascinated by the novelty and experimentalism of many of the institutions that are created during the Cold War that are hybrids that sort of blur the lines between the public um, and the private, for instance. Things like RAND and Associated Universities, Inc., and, and even NASA and how it operates. Um I guess what struck me is how that experimentalism or the boundary crossing was so rarely acknowledged at the time, um, and the boundaries were sort of taken for granted. What do you think is going on there? Well, that's a great question, and you know, some of what I think is going on there isn't in the book because I'm speculating. I allude to it a little bit uh, towards the end of chapter three, where I talk about uh, kind of big science and why the advisory structures are so. Um, uncoordinated. That's I think going on has to do with some very strongly held ideological assumptions about how science works in America. Um, And, you know, that scientists are not controlled by the government. Uh, That this is a central, uh, dearly held belief of American scientists and administrators during this time period. And I'll Sure, if you want to contra- if you want to contrast American scientists with their counterparts in the Soviet Union, they were certainly uh, much more free to do as they wished. And it's true that the United States didn't have five year plans. Um, but on the other hand, you know, this is completely ridiculous when you look at where the funding is coming from in certain fields. Uh, you know, the, the National Science Foundation was created in 1950, as uh, obviously as a civilian agency to fund basic research. But until Sputnik, uh, it had a very very small funding, uh, funding stream. Um, so until 1957, most basic research in the universities that was being funded by the federal government, uh, well, so a bit, well, it depends on what field you're talking about, uh, but, but in a lot of fields, the vast majority of this was either coming from defense agencies or from quasi-defense agencies, specifically the Atomic Energy Commission and the Naval Research, which was a division of um, kind of a research arm of the Navy that funded both um, direct 
research, but also uh, kind of university research as a way to kind of keep scientists on the Navy's side, basically. And what you have there is a real reluctance to acknowledge what's going on. And I, I, I'm convinced that this is this deeply seated, uh, deeply held belief that, yes, American scientists are existing community of um, kind of individuals who are making their own choices. Uh, and it's very, very difficult for them at the time to acknowledge, um, you know, that they're part of government science, basically. That they're part of the military industrial academic complex. That they're part of the military academic industrial complex, but that this is um, in some ways part of planning. And I mean, you, you right. see that clearly in NASA, um, in, in the Apollo projects. I mean, NASA is a civilian agency. It's partially, um, you know, it, it, its charter makes clear that it is not to do defense work, that the, uh, the space military, the military operations in space are to be handled by the DOD, uh, at least through the 70s. Um, NASA is supposed to be a civilian agency. Um, that is in part uh, to make it clear that it is an open that it is open agency, that they do not, that it is a peaceful agency. And the, the United States purposes in space are peaceful. So it's, um, it's a legal structure as well that was related to um, establishing flyover rights uh, for South. So um, this deeply held belief that while NASA is clearly all about demonstrating uh, United States technological superiority in the skies, it's also going to do that through private industry. So it has all of these relationships with contractors mm -hmm. and you know, a lot of the work is being done in private contractors and it's building up private industry. But at the same time, it's also very much um, a great society program. Uh, the reason, one of the reasons why all of so many of the NASA uh, institutions are in the South along the Gulf of Mexico and in, and in the Southwest was really meant to uh, to build up these universities and to give them an economic boost. It's sort of a, a leftover version of the New Deal, uh, but in space. Uh, so it's very much a uh, kind of big government, you know, government growth driven project that it's about being able to say that it's about private industry and being able to say that it's about civilian scientists. Right. And you you keep on returning to um, probably, I guess, the charter of that vision of science as individually driven progress. Um, Vannevar Bush's uh, The Endless Frontier in the book, right? Um, I guess maybe you could say a little bit now about how this vision of America as that particular kind of a scientific nation affects its engagement with, a, with the rest of the world, which I think was one of the real strengths of the book. Um, um, yeah, so in, in its engagement with the rest of the world in a lot of different ways, some of which I say more about in the book than others, where it comes up the most uh, is in terms of modernization theory, which is the topic of chapter four on hearts and minds. Um, theory or development theory, whatever you want to call it, um, was this idea that uh, all societies kind of went through stages of economic growth, uh, most commonly associated with uh, Walter Rostow, who was uh, later Johnson's national security advisor. Uh, one of the reasons why the United States should be working with newly independent nations uh, would be to help them use science and technology to get to the next stage of economic growth. And that if they went through these stages of economic growth in a specific way, a specifically uh, technological way, that they would end up kind of naturally with capitalist democratic societies. Um, and so one of the goals of the United, one, one of the purposes of international aid at that point was to make sure that these societies went through this, these, um, 
really delicate periods of transition in the right way and ended up solution. So that, that's one very specific way uh, that science and technology was orienting the relationships to. Uh, so for instance, uh, international degree agreements, particularly about uh, space, or there are um, in the 1950s, and this doesn't come up much in the book, uh, but it's a fairly well-known aspect of American foreign policy. Um, these ideas of atoms for peace, uh, mm -hmm. this Eisenhower where uh, it, it would demonstrate the United States' benevolence to the rest of the world uh, in, in its, um, its commitment to peace purposes as opposed to just warlike purposes, that the atom and nuclear research could be used for good as well as for weapons. So what we see repeatedly is this coming back to the notion that objects, whether they might be um, kind of instruments or nuclear reactors um, and scientific dollars. Uh, so, for instance, grants and exchange programs or scientific ideas, the ways of thinking like an American scientist, that all of these things are going to kind of a free world community who thinks on a scientific basis. And here it's important to remember the title of the book, right? Competing with the Soviets. <laughs> So that Rostow is not the only one offering a model of what development looks like. Absolutely. There is absolutely an alternative uh, that um, is being promoted by the Soviet Union. Um, and for the purposes of this book, in some ways, what's more important than the actual Soviet alternative is what American foreign policy leaders think the Soviet alternative is. Vision of the Soviet alternative, the one that they talk about, is all about grand technological projects uh, and kind of uh, science technicians as cogs in a machine where they don't have um, freedom, and they always return to this term freedom, where they don't have the freedom to make their own decisions, and that they're going to be driven by um, state policy, and that their research plans are going to be driven by state policy. It's a character in a lot of ways. Uh, but in, some, in many ways, it is a caricature. And that's in part what they're reacting to when they're talking about how American science is different. No, for sure. Um, I actually, you, you mentioned this a couple of times in the book, and, it, and it's something that's frustrated me a lot because I study sort of this stuff. Um, is that So there's this profound engagement, a recognition of the, this relationship between politics um, and or free politics and science, and that you know they go together. There's this concern that science is going to benefit the public good or the general welfare in all these ways and you know that science is great and we need more science and we need to put tons of money into science but there's actually an incredibly poor level of analysis in terms of exactly how science is going to benefit things or what scientific freedom actually is or um, just in, in, in terms of scientific policy itself um, why do you think this, this doesn't get developed more clearly I wish I knew the answer to that <laughs> In some ways, it is just, I mean, I think that that's part of why I'm convinced that this is about an ideology, that it's part of American ideology. It's part of Americanism. Uh, you know, what makes America great? It's science. Um, right. And, and these things go together. And so the assumption is that American science is part of that. There's a remarkable lack of attention to, um, some people have called the science of science policy during this time period. Um, as, as you well know, um, and there's some attention to that in the early in the early 60s, um, various organizations um, try to get a handle on it because 
they see more and more federal dollars being pulled into being poured into various science projects. And they're not seeing much come out of that. You know, certainly in 1957, the shock Sputnik was a shock. Uh, to it was it was a psychological shock, even if it wasn't a surprise. Uh, certainly, certain senior people in the military and in Eisenhower's uh, circle weren't surprised per se by Sputnik. Um, but it was a shock in that it wasn't supposed to happen. That American science was supposed to be better. Maybe it's too secretive, or maybe we're pouring too much money into applied research and not research. Maybe we're maybe we're doing why. Um, National Academies of Science actually do a series of studies um, in the early '60s where they basically come up with this idea that all fields grow by approximately 15% every year. And what that means for a field to grow by 15% isn't exactly clear. You know. Just more scientists go into the field. What does this mean? Um, policymakers and scientific administrators really struggling with this question of how do you quantify? Because they're all obsessed with quantification and they don't know the answer to that. And I would say we still don't know the answer to that when you look at science policy, that, there, that people talk a lot of different ways about how you can tell, um, you know, impact statements or a journal's impact. But they really don't know. And it's, it's an incredibly difficult thing to quantify, whether we're talking about creativity or whether the transition from ideas to applications, it's difficult. And when you're pouring um, the kinds of sums of money that they were during this time period um, into scientific fields, it's urgent and they don't know how to do it. So before we had that interruption, you were talking about these attempts to quantify science. Um, and really the way that quantification puts a veneer of scientisticity or something on top of that. But I mean, the other thing that you, that you talk about that is, again, I think a great strength of this book is the way that scientific authority um, gets drawn into all of these American domestic affairs in this time period, ranging from things like the Brown decision to the great society. And sometimes, sometimes that just has to do with quantification. Uh, could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, in some part, it is about quantification, and it is about scientific authority. But the fact that they're in the book in the first place, um, I think, um, you know, is is not necessarily a given. And I think it, it bears explaining why they're there. They're there because I very much believe that one has to tell the, t the story of the Cold War as a total war, uh, as, as, you know, a total war, that this isn't just about um, military issues. And one of the reasons why, say, race relations uh, were such an issue in the 1960s, there are many, many reasons, you know, from a social justice perspective, why they should have been on the agenda. But that's not necessarily why they were on the agenda. It was certainly one of them. And the power of the of, of civil rights leaders is absolutely one of the main reasons why this is on the agenda. But um, so the civil rights situation in the United States in the 1950s and early 60s was increasingly an embarrassment for the uh, for the uh, for federal administrations uh, in the foreign policy arena. You know, uh, diplomats from newly freed African nations or from newly independent African nations would come to the United States. And of course, Washington is uh, kind of on the border of the Upper South. 
And they would have diplomats who would be refused accommodation um, at restaurants. This was an enormous public relations problem for the United States. And figuring out a way to show that the United States had the moral upper hand in the battle of communism included its relationships with minorities. And so it's one of the it's it's one of the reasons why um, the Kennedy administration and the Johnson administration can manage to find support in Congress uh, for its various efforts uh, to make what became uh, Johnson's The Great Society program. Um, so on the one hand, some of the programs that they attempted become possible because of the claim. <laughs> because of the claims of science. Um, some of the administrators of Johnson's uh, war on poverty at one point actually say that they're going to eliminate poverty and they treat it as a war. They use military metaphors. Many of them had worked for uh, military establishments. They were um, what, what some scholars have called defense intellectuals who were hoping to directly import their um, problem solving skills to the civilian arena. Um, but I think that the broader point is that domestic life is part of the Cold War experience during this time period. And then when we look at the Cold War as just a battle, um, you know, just a military battle, and when we fixate on the military um, industrial complex, we miss a really important part of what's going on um, when, when we talk about the Cold War. And so for me, it was really important to include these domestic programs, which are of a piece, not only because of the personal connections uh, between some of the some of the individuals who were involved in the administration of the programs, but also because of their intent, that they are all about showing that the United States um, is, you know, supposedly the best, you know, that, that it's the best place, that, that it is superior to the Soviet system. And that scientific knowledge and the application of scientific knowledge is one of the things that makes it so. Okay. So let me ask you a controversial question about uh, this total war thesis. Um, and it's not something that you acknowledge in the book, but I think I wonder. I think it was something that's operating in the background. Um, and it's the way that the history of science in America itself actually grew up in the Cold War. And I wonder how much it, it internalized these Cold War preoccupations and divisions. Um, so how do you think, I mean, maybe a, the nice way to ask this question is, how do you think the field has changed since a generation of scholars trained after the Cold War have started to make their mark in it or have come of age? Um, so how might the book be, have been different, I guess, if you'd written it 10 to 15 years ago? Right. It's a tricky, it's a tricky and difficult question. And I think there are a couple of different ways, uh, a couple of different things that are going on. Uh, one of the questions uh, to think about is, are, are who these accounts are for. So when writing for scientists, I think a lot of the work in the uh, 70s and 80s about the relationship between scientists and the state during the Cold War period uh, was really centered on this question of how much power scientists had uh, over control of their own fates, you know, how much control they had over their own fates. A question of whether scientists, say, who developed weapons really had any say in how those weapons were used. And some of that scholarship is about um, scientists trying to make sense of their own role. Some of Scholarship is really a kind of consciousness raising. Um, you know, there were studies, uh, particularly Paul Foreman's work was 
important, showing just how much of the funding in certain areas came from military uh, from military establishments. I mean, the, the numbers are, are are pretty shocking in some fields. And in, in quantum electronics, the field that he made most famous, he's estimated that 95% of the funding um, for that field came from defense establishments in the late 40s and early 50s. Um, and so there was a lot of talk about whether or not um, that Basically, there's a lot of talk about what kind of effects that kind of funding must have had on the research. And those were important questions, both for scientists who participated in it and for those who were watching what was going on in the universities. Um, for, sci for historians of science who were on college campuses in the late 60s and early 70s, I think it's been very difficult to separate an analysis of uh, partnerships between university researchers and the military from Vietnam-era protests. Uh, although we don't necessarily think of it offhand, a lot of those protests on campus were specifically about um, military partnerships with university labs. Uh, you know, like at Columbia University, for instance, there was a multi-day siege of a physics department. Uh, so a lot of the most um, high-profile events on those campuses uh, some of them, of course, were about uh, ROTC, officer training programs, so those aren't science-related. But a lot of them were specifically about classified research happening in scientific labs. Um, so that's important to understand. I think for those scholars, it was really important to understand how that came about and trying to figure out um, how American universities got caught, got so caught up in military work during this time period, uh, because it clearly seemed that something had soured. But I think what happened um, in the past 15 years or so, well, a couple of different things have happened. One is that the Cold War has ended. Um, and so the stakes aren't quite as high in figuring out what kind of country the United States is to be, for better and for worse. Um, there is less argument about um, you know, what kind of place we are, what kind of people we are. Um, but there's also been a lot more work about um, what, what some people might call the domestic Cold War, and I would say more recently the ideological Cold War. And taking the story of the Cold War beyond American borders has completely changed how that story looks. Um, and I think the most influential book has actually been uh, Odd Westad's book, Global Cold War, that came out about five years ago. Uh, it's an amazing book that attempts to tell the entire, uh, that attempts to tell the story of the Cold War from the perspective of the entire world. So it's not a U.S.-Soviet-centered account. It's looking at, you know, particularly the global south. And when you tell that kind of story, one of the things that happens is that the timeline changes. Uh, you can't talk about the Cold War as that started in 1945 and ended with Vietnam-era protests, when you take seriously the role of proxy wars in the third world, when you're really looking at, um, you know, uh, with insurgencies and how the United States and the Soviet Union and increasingly China uh, were engaging each other, particularly in Africa, the story looks very, very different. Um, and the broader partnerships uh, between American citizens and their government really starts to come into view. Um, so, for instance, um, if this was a battle about ideology, which Westad says it is, and I find that to be a compelling argument, then, you know, showing that American science in general is superior to communist science, uh, as Americans envisioned it, becomes important. And so 
even showing that American civilian science, you know, funding for civilian basic research is just as important in fighting the Cold War from that perspective as military research, because it's about demonstrating the superiority of a particular way of life. When you look at it from that perspective, it becomes really difficult to figure out who would be outside of the Cold War system. You know, what would it mean to not be participating in Cold War science, say, 19... And that's not clear to me. Right. Like in 1963. I think one can make some arguments about it, but, you know, this is a pretty... It, this is a total war. If this is about demonstrating different, you know, different ways of life, then a lot of science is really part of that, uh, part of that effort. Okay. So... I think one of the things you argue, and I think is quite interesting, is not only that it's that um, the way of American science matters, but it's also that the relationship between American science and American government matters, and is particularly characteristic of something to be emulated. And I think sort of Webb, the director of NASA, is very explicit about this and saying that if we if we show this if we can get to the moon, this is going to be a huge bureaucratic and governmental achievement as well as a scientific achievement and the fact that we can interface them well. I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about, um, I guess, the particularly fraught group of the, 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 of the President's Scientific Advisory Committee um, and the way that, in actuality, scientists have operated as advisors and as authorities to not just the president, but I guess elites and leaders in, in the United States over this time period. Sure. I'll talk to PSAC in a minute. But first, I just want to say I love Jim Webb. He's amazing things. He wrote this spectacularly boring book called Space Age Management. Uh, I think anyone who's interested in this time period has to look because this book is just a manifesto about how democratic societies can pull off large scale technological projects addresses the fact that it's easier to do that if you're in a communist society because the United States has democratic you know the challenge of Apollo is Congress on board for the time that it takes to build the entire system it is a fascinating book it's also this like I said incredibly dull um, you know, it's 1969-era management speak in the worst possible way. And it is just a fascinating document of um, kind of uh, Cold War technocracy. I highly recommend that everybody take a look at Jim Webb's Space Age Management. So PSAC, uh, right. So PSAC is what people, uh, is the acronym that people use for the President's Science Advisory Council. And this was a group that was uh, formed uh, by Eisenhower in relation to Sputnik. It not the first attempt to have a similar advisory group to advise a president. Truman had had one, uh, had, had tried to form one earlier in the 1950s and promptly ignored it. Um, so the, these groups are one of the ways that when historians have traditionally talked about scientific, scientific authority during this time period, they have looked at um, these various advisory groups. So on the one hand, you have PSAC, but you also have advisory groups to any number of uh, defense agencies. Uh, almost every defense agency, even the State Department, um, you know, and the CIA has have their own scientific advisory groups. Um, and I 
one of the real questions, a, a, a historiographical football, and, the, and this debate is still continuing, and I don't think I particularly take a strong side on it either way, is, you know, how much power these groups had to uh, advise or whether people listened to them or not. Uh, some scholars say that one of their main purposes was to criticize and that then the administrations could choose to choose to take their advice or not. Yet other scholars have basically said, no, they're there for show. They're, you know, the military is going to do whatever they want. And, and, and you're, you're more credible if you have scientists on your staff. Um, but one of the things that does change over time is that whatever the, whatever the president's relationship with his science advisors actually was, by the Nixon administration, there's no one even wants to pretend anymore. There's falling out, and Nixon actually eliminated the uh, the PSAC after his reelection in 1973. Um, and there's kind of a there's kind of a mutual disenchantment from one another. Uh, the scientists have become increasingly frustrated with. Um, uh, many of them increasingly felt that they were being used, that they were uh, giving cover to uh, military choices that they didn't agree with and that they hadn't endorsed. But at the same time, the military was less interested in hearing their advice. Uh, both the United States and the Soviet Union had more than enough nuclear warheads to blow up the war many to blow up the world many times over. It no longer seemed as if kind of high tech weaponry was going to be the thing that was going to determine the fate of the Cold War. But they had also stopped believing in the power of basic scientific research to offer those uh, technological breakthroughs, and that had been one of the founding premises of Cold War science. Uh, you mentioned Vannevar Bush earlier. Um, certainly the idea in science, The Endless Frontier, that, that post-war kind of blueprint for American science, assumed that you had to fund basic research to produce breakthroughs. And a report in the late 60s called Project Hindsight, in which the military was trying to figure out what exactly it had paid for. You know, how investments produce much? And the short answer was not really, not much, that almost all of the payoff was from uh, so-called applied research instead of research. Um, and so there comes this point where the scientists and the military advisors are sort of done with one another. Um, you know, they're, they're not agreeing with one another politically, but they also are not convinced that they're going to be as useful to each other anymore. And increasingly what happens after the early 1970s is that a lot of that military research happens um, within defense contractors uh, as opposed to uh, on university campuses and usually not in partnership with um, kind of senior high-profile scientists in the way that it did in the late 40s and early 50s. Okay. And it, is that true for Star Wars as well? Star Wars is an interesting point because it doesn't really work. And the <laughs> With the exception of Ed, with the exception of Edward Teller, the scientific community uniformly condemned Star Wars. So while it, would, it might be a mistake to say that Star Wars was the nail in the coffin, it was certainly one of the last nails in the coffin. Um, and of course, it's not that there is no military research being done on American campuses anymore. Certainly, there is, and with the uh, war on terror. You know, there's certainly been an uptick in in uh, kind of that kind of thing happening on university campuses, but you know, it's not the same. It's not to the same extent, and it's not that you know every. There was a point in the mid '50s where almost every kind of senior theoretical physicist could be assumed to be working in some ways uh, with, you know, a major defense agency. That's not the case these days. No. Okay. So. 
you luckily got to read all of the latest and greatest books in the um, history of American science and then put together a synthetic account of them. What do you think are um, the most interesting in developing fields and in, or subfields in the Cold War history of science today? Well, I love this emphasis on global history. Uh, obviously, within uh, history at large, within the past five to 10 years, there's been such an emphasis on transnationalism. And I think historians of science have been struggling with figuring out how you talk about this, because the ways that we traditionally talked about Cold War science have been very top down, very focused on these advising agencies or very focused on relationships between the military and university campuses. When you take a more global perspective, it completely blows that up. You know, and you're looking at what um, people are making of maybe the idea of science. Uh, you're looking at all of these uh, movements across boundaries. Um, it's great stuff. It's really great stuff. I'm very excited to see new literature that takes um, questions from other fields uh, or from other periods of history and is using them to explore um it's, it's using kind of Cold War science as, as a kind of case study to investigate um, to investigate these larger historical questions. So, for instance, um, perhaps about the formation of the technological self. You know, I think those kinds of things are really fascinating. And I think it's uh, very healthy for the scholarship on science in the Cold War to start thinking about um, broader issues that don't come out of questions that started with the military industrial complex. Okay. Um, thanks so much for your talk today. Before we go, why don't you tell us what you're working on now? Well, I am so excited about science and, and what I would call soft diplomacy. I can barely tell you how excited I am about this. Um, you know, it's a question of, of what science is for. And so I've been, in the past couple of years, really looking at efforts, uh, particularly in the State Department um, and some agencies that may or may not have had funding from intelligence agencies to promote ideas about what science is like in America and what science could be like uh, in your own country. Um, and I'm, I'm looking at people giving lecture tours, exchanges, um, you know, just all sorts of ideas about kind of how science moves in the world. And it's really about the idea of science. It's not so much about the products of science. Um, but I'm finding it great fun and a really great change to, again, to be looking beyond American borders uh, for having been, uh, you know, having had so much of this Cold War science stuff in the United States. It's really fun to, to uh, go beyond the borders for a while. Thanks so much, Audra. That was my interview with Audra Wolf about her new book, Competing with the Soviets, Science, Technology, and the State in Cold War America. For the New Book Network's page for Science, Technology, and Society, I'm Patrick Slaney. Thanks for listening.